Hey, good morning, friends. Great to see you. I'm Matt. If you don't know me, welcome. Great to be with you today. Uh, we're going to take the offering. So ushers, come on. I forgot this in the first service, by the way. So you guys get, <laughs> get the cleaned up mistakes. <laughs> so uh, let's take the offering. Uh, thank you, ushers. And thank you guys for giving, being a part of that. Um, it's been a while since I've been here with you all at Essex. I was here uh, at the beginning of the summer, and now I find myself here at the end of the summer. Um, what's new with you? I've got a man bun now, so that's all we need to say about it. Let's move on. Uh, a couple things, uh, just to quickly, uh, a couple things, one big thing, just to, to remind us of something Kylie touched on in the announcements today, is that corn roast is uh, two weeks minus one day, is that how math works? From today, yes, two weeks minus one day, corn roast, September 10th. Uh, most, many of you have been a part of corn, corn roast before, whether just coming and enjoying or serving and, and being a part of the volunteer team. It is a massive event, it is a lot of fun, and it takes a lot of you, a lot of us together to pull this thing off. We need volunteers to make this thing happen. So I just wanna encourage you, uh, don't be afraid to volunteer for corn roast. We've got it, uh, great jobs listed, and it's in time slots, so you're only serving for a couple hours, and then you can enjoy the rest with your friends and family, but uh, we've got plenty of ways to serve. We've got uh, coffee makers. Last year, I volunteered as part of the uh, roasting team, which was, it was like a marathon of corn. I don't even know how else to say it, just hot but it was a blast. I had so much fun with the team there, getting to know them a little bit, getting all sweaty. It was a, a really fun time. Uh, but I think, the, I think the best job available, so you're gonna wanna sign up for this one if you're thinking about volunteering, is uh, at the s'mores station. The s'mores station. If you want a place where you're gonna put smiles on people's faces, and you're gonna see those kids just like running at you, just wait, you know, chocolate on their face like my kids are going to, s'mores station's where you wanna be. So uh, take a look in the lobby. We got a table with some signups uh, on your way out. Just uh, see what's available. We'd love to have you be a part of that team or you can sign up online on Church Center. I also wanna uh, uh, reiterate the fact, just invite people. This is one of those events that's not just for us in the pews, it's for us to invite people to come and, and have fun with us and get to know us a little bit and uh, just enjoy the early fall, late summer in Vermont as we chow down on corn together. So invite your friends, invite neighbors, invite family, invite whoever to come and be a part of this event. And lastly, just wanna say, if you're here, and you're like, oh, I'm new, or I haven't really gotten to know many people at church, I don't wanna show up and be alone, I guarantee you, you're not gonna be alone if you show up. You are gonna get to know some folks, uh, there's, uh, it's just a blast. So don't let that fear or that feeling stop you, because I guarantee if you go, you're not gonna regret it, you're gonna have a great time uh, at Corn Roast. So invite people, sign up and volunteer, uh, invite people to volunteer with you, and uh, show up and have a blast. So Corn Roast, you're not gonna wanna miss it. It's a great event. So um, last month, I guess that was July, right? Last month was July. July, I was scheduled to uh, speak on a retreat for the uh, Burlington Vietnamese Alliance Church. They're one of the a few churches that uh, rents uh, space at our North Avenue campus where I am most of the time. And so their young adult group goes away every summer for a weekend camping trip uh, together and it's a retreat. So they have a speaker and, and you know, discussion and small group. So they asked me to come and do that. Uh, and I was like, yeah, definitely. They promised to feed me and my family their delicious Vietnamese food. We we're like, yes, we are in. So we were ready to go. And um, 
I had messages prepared. I had uh, like small group discussion stuff prepared. And that week as we were getting ready to leave on Friday, we're getting all our camping gear in order. All right, I've got my big giant knife, number one. Number two, I've got the tent. That's the second most important thing. And making sure we had all our stuff. So everything was in order. And Thursday rolls around, right? Day before we're supposed to leave. My wife wakes up feeling sick. And uh, well, we got a big weekend. Let's, let's make sure we're good. Took a test and wouldn't you know, COVID. Uh, Friday, I'm like, maybe I can just go myself and, you know, Friday, I wake up feeling a little sick, take a test, COVID. So, uh, you know, the great ruiner of plans, COVID came and visited us and, uh, I didn't, we didn't go on the retreat. I was able to prepare some other stuff for them real quick to send so they could have some just small group time and and kind of approach it that way. Uh, needless to say, (laughs) I had put my messages aside, and I've been sitting on a few messages for a couple months now, and I thought they were pretty good, and I don't want them to go to waste, so I've got you this week and next week where I'm going to be sharing these messages with you. Now, I, I know what you're probably thinking is like, like lazy Matt, didn't want to do something new. Like, no, I, I think... Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I think, I think is, but I do, I believe this is the truth that as we kind of transition back to, to real life from summer into fall, where there's a new schedule of school and work and ministry and projects and, you know, all this stuff that comes with the turn of the calendar into fall and that God, I think, has some encouragement for us, some things to remind us of uh, in these couple of messages. And I really, I I didn't want them to go to waste. And I think he's got some things for us um, as we kind of come into these weeks of of turning the calendar. So uh, that's what we're doing this week and next week. We're going to look at at a couple of things. But let's just get into it. We're going to start in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Some of you might know this verse. Here we go. Romans 1, 16 says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You know, I spent a lot of my life not quite knowing what to do with the gospel. This message that Jesus came, he died and rose again to forgive our sins and to bring us eternal life. For a long time, I realize now, I didn't quite know what to do with that, with the gospel, that message. And, you know, I've shared my, some of my story with you guys before. Uh, some of you might remember it. Most of you probably not. That's cool. It's all good. But as I look back on seasons of my life, especially in the years when I started to re-engage my faith in college, I, I can't help but think there was a, a lot of time wasted And maybe some of you might feel the same looking back at your life, or maybe you feel the same about your life now. Just time being wasted when it comes to the gospel. You know, I came back to faith as a college student. I dove in really hard with some church friends and uh, started ignoring some of my friends from growing up who, uh, you know, weren't Christians, didn't come to church. And I look back now and I see the missed opportunities and the time to walk alongside my non-church friends and share my journey with them while I was in the middle of it. I spent a lot of time with people who believed what I believed, and I didn't quite live that missional call Jesus had for me and has for all of us who follow him. So I spent a lot of years not really quite knowing what to do with the gospel, how to handle it. I I love Jesus. I do. I did. But I didn't know quite how to talk about him, who to talk about him with, when was the time right, don't want to push this guy away, Is is, is this the time? 
You know, I had, I had friends who, maybe you can sympathize, friends who felt a little judged by me because of some actions or things I had said. Um, I had friends who kind of stopped hanging out with me because of my faith and becoming a Christian and really digging in there. And then I had my church friends who, whether they knew it or not or intended or not, and I'm sure I did the same to them, made me feel guilty for not talking about Jesus enough with my non-Christian, non-church friends. So, you know, I didn't, like any of us, I don't want to lose friends. I don't want to push people away. I don't want to uh, be seen a certain way dry for not saying the right thing at the right time. So, but at the same time, I wanted to tell people about Jesus and talk about it with them and knew that I was supposed to, right? The Bible says we're supposed to be witnesses, make disciples, talk about him. So I lived in this tension for a long time of, of uh, not quite knowing what to do because on the one hand, I was feeling fear and on the other, I was feeling guilt. Fear about losing friends or not fitting in, pushing people away, and guilt about not talking about Jesus enough with them. And in the midst of that fear and guilt, I felt a lot of shame. Fear, guilt, and shame. These three feelings often come along together to work to drag us down in our faith and to keep us from experiencing the fullness of life God has for us and to keep us from fulfilling the mission he's called us to, of telling people about who Jesus is and what he did. And I believe there's few things Satan would love more than to stop us from talking about Jesus because we fear, uh, feel fear and guilt and shame. And I believe that there's few things God wants more for you than to remind you that in him and because of him, you don't need to fear You don't need to feel guilty or feel ashamed. So I want to define those three terms real quick, fear, guilt, and shame. We're going to start with fear. Fear is an emotional reaction to the belief that something is going to cause suffering. It can be an emotional, physical, or relational kind of suffering, right? Fear it's not really a simple, rational thought, although it may start that way, where you look at an, uh, you know, a situation or a person or a thing and say, oh, that's dangerous, right? could start there, but it doesn't stay there. Fear goes beyond that and becomes a feeling, a feeling that affects our whole, our whole being, our whole self, right? How we think when we're afraid, how we act when we're afraid, our hands tremble and shake, the butterflies in your stomach, hard to think rationally. Fear affects our whole being. When I was uh, 12 or 13, somewhere in there, my family, we took a trip to Disney World in Florida. And we spent three days uh, going to the parks and having fun and doing a lot of stuff. But you know, when you're a 13-year-old kid, You know, you go to Disney World, and it's cool, but most of the rides at Disney World aren't super exciting, right? No 13-year-old boy is, like, super stoked to go on the Dumbo ride, or uh, (laughs) or it's a small world. So, you know, I was like, ah, these rides are a little childish. I'm a big, cool, big teenager now, whatever. But on the third day, we found ourselves at MGM. I don't... Is it still MGM? I don't even... Who cares? MGM was one of the parks at Disney World uh, back then. And at MGM... There was a ride called the Tower of Terror. Some of you might know the Tower of Terror. 
It instills fear in all who behold it, right? Tower of Terror. So the Tower of Terror is this ride that, you know, you go up and it kind of drops you and just straight up and down. It's thrilling. And it's set up to be like an old haunted hotel or something. I'm trying to remember, you know. And you walk through the line, and as you walk through the line, there's like scenery and images. You're walking through the hotel that anticipates the ride, Ooh, it's spooky and haunted, and you're supposed to like build that and you know that terror and anxiety as you get closer to the ride, and then you go on it, and we lots of fun, right? So we're going on the Tower of Terror, me and Dad. I'm like, Dad, I want to do that. He's like, All right, we get in line, and I was excited, and as but as we got closer, and as we went through the line, I started to feel anxious. And then that anxiety turned to fear, and we got so close to the front of the line, I could see the people getting off the ride, and I was absolutely terrified. And I used to, Dad, let's go. I can't do this. I can't do this. He's like, son, you can. I'm like, no, I can't. So then uh, he's like, all right, and we bail, and you know, you do the walk of shame, or you walk, <laughs> walk past everyone back, you know, and uh, it, was, it was seeing kids younger than me, like in line, and so, um, <laughs> but, uh, so we left the line. Now, I know the ride's safe. Not every 13-year-old kid's a total idiot, right? I knew, I, like, I see there's harnesses, right? You're buckled in. People are getting off. They're smiling. They're laughing. That was awesome, right? But I was so afraid, I couldn't, like, see the rational thought that this is going to be okay, right? Not to mention Disney's a major corporation. They don't want you to die because they don't want to get sued, right? So I'm like, oh, you know, it's totally safe. It's going to be great. But I couldn't see past the fear, because, you know, fear tends to affect our whole self, how we act, how we think, how we rationalize things. And it's hard to escape that feeling of fear. Fear will often keep you from taking risks. Fear tells you, don't do it, it might hurt. Fear keeps you from taking risks. And it affects our whole being. Guilt move on to guilt. Guilt is a different kind of feeling. Guilt comes when you did something wrong or you feel like you did something wrong. It's kind of part regret, part understanding what I did was wrong, and maybe part even seeing that you're not quite who you thought you were, even if it was just for a moment. Now, you don't have to like break the law to feel guilty, or you don't even really have to hurt someone directly. Maybe you did something you swore to yourself you'd never do. Or maybe you had a chance to help someone and you didn't. And those thoughts come, I should have, what if, right? Guilt can be hard to shake. Guilt tends to stick with us. Now over time, guilt, those feelings might shrink and lessen and we might be able to put them aside, but eventually you're gonna see the person that you hurt or something you say or do or see is gonna remind you of a situation and that feeling of guilt is gonna pop up and bubble back up comes back. Guilt doesn't tend to go away on its own. It sticks with us until we find forgiveness. And guilt, I think, will keep you from being honest. Guilt makes you avoid people or topics or circumstances so you don't have to think about it. You don't have to talk about it. Keeps you from being honest. Tells you to hide. Don't let people know what you did. Finally, shame. Now, shame is pretty close to guilt, but there is a key difference between shame and guilt. Right? You feel guilt when you think you've done something bad or when you've done something wrong, right? 
We feel shame when we believe we are wrong. Shame isn't something that just says you did a bad thing, feel bad about it. Shame tells us you're a bad person. You're lesser than. You're not good enough. You don't deserve good things. You know, in Romans 1.16, which we read a minute ago, when the Apostle Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, that word ashamed he uses there in the original Greek means to... Uh, to feel or sense a loss of status because of something you did or something that happened in relation to you. You feel a loss of status, like you come down the rung of the ladder a few pegs, right? Shame is to feel lower or lesser than you were. Maybe it's to believe that people have lost respect for you or you've lost respect for yourself or something you've done. And shame affects more than just the experience or the decision we've made, right? Shame, again, it digs deep into our soul. It might affect how we are seen by other people, how we view ourselves even. And shame, I believe, will keep you away from people. It'll isolate you, tell you to protect yourself. Don't let them see you. Don't let them know. Fear, guilt, and shame. These three feelings will keep you from taking risks, keep you from being honest, and keep you from engaging well with people. It's no wonder Satan loves <laughs> fear, guilt, and shame. Because to fulfill the great commission, to make disciples, to talk with people about Jesus, you need to take risks, right? You need to be honest and vulnerable about your life. And you need to engage deeply with people on a very personal level. So when it comes to the gospel and, and talking about it and sharing it and knowing what to do with it, fear, guilt, and shame, they kind of work together to keep you from talking about Jesus. And oftentimes they work in a cycle, right? Maybe, uh, maybe you've been afraid to talk about Jesus before because you don't want to feel rejected or feel uh, you know, like you're ashamed for your beliefs in front of someone else. Then you feel guilty for not talking about Jesus, which makes you feel shame for not doing it, right? It's kind of ironic that you're afraid to feel shame, so you don't talk about it, and then because you don't, you feel guilty and ashamed for not doing it, right? So it's like, an, it's like a weird cycle that works against us, and it can be hard to escape. So uh, how do we avoid that? How do we break out of it? I want to read Romans 1.16 again. Where the Apostle Paul writes... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, these are pretty strong, decisive words from Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. It's the power of God. It brings salvation to everyone who believes. Those are strong words, decisive words, confident words. And yet it's so easy for so many of us to get caught in that fear, guilt, and shame cycle. But that's not what God wants for us. Paul knew that. Paul lived it. And somehow he was able to write these words and really mean them when he wrote them. I am not ashamed of the gospel. He means it when he says it. So was Paul a superhuman, right? Was he a robot? Was his faith so much greater than mine? Am I a bad Christian for sometimes feeling afraid or guilty or ashamed? Paul, how are you able to so confidently say these words? So what I want to do this week and next week 
is to take a look at Paul's life and his experiences and see what it was that he was able to lean on or that was able to build him up to be able to write and mean these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, there's a lot to be said about this. There's a lot of things we could say. But I just want to look at Paul's life and I want to identify four themes from his life that I believe contributed to him being able to say these words with confidence. We're going to talk about two themes today, two themes next week. And we're going to see what we can draw out from these to help us to stand firm, to not get caught in the fear, guilt, and shame when it comes to the gospel. So four themes, two today, two next Sunday. Let's get to the first theme. The first theme from Paul's life is that Paul was passionate. Paul was a passionate guy from the time that he was a child. You know, Paul, he was born uh, with the name Saul. That was his Jewish name. And he was born to a Jewish mother in a town called Tarsus. Tarsus is on the south coast of Turkey, on the north coast of the Mediterranean, uh, a few hundred miles north of uh, Israel and the center of Jewish life, uh, Jerusalem, the city there. So as a young uh, Jewish boy, as any good Jewish boy would, Paul grew up studying the Old Testament scriptures, learning the traditions of his people, But his town, where he lived, right, it's outside of Israel. It's not a Jewish town. It's a Roman town. Young young Saul and his family were the cultural minority in Tarsus. So the dedication to learning and sticking to the familial and religious traditions became extremely important so that they wouldn't lose that, that sense of heritage, that sense of uh, worship of their God amidst so many other things. And if you look at the Old Testament that young Saul studied, you might notice that there are some parallels between the young Saul and the Old Testament people of Israel, stuff that I think he would have latched onto. The small people, group of people, the Israelites, surrounded on all sides by hostile outsiders, God again and again saving them from these outsiders, and sometimes saving them even in violent ways. Maybe you've heard the term zeal before, the word zeal, zealous, zealot, zeal. It's all from the same word, zeal. That word zeal means to be extremely passionate about something, and you can say obsessive, even to the point of violence. Zeal is a pretty extreme word. Now, there was a group of Jews throughout the Old Testament times, and in Paul's day as well, uh, that were called the Zealots. They were given that title, the Zealots. They were passionate and even violent when it came to following and defending their faith and their traditions. Now, the story that inspired the Zealots is the Old Testament story of Phineas from the book of Numbers. Um, I'm going to try to summarize the story, so I'm sorry for leaving details out. So the story of Phineas starts with the Israelites. They've been wandering in the desert under Moses for years and years. They're starting to make their way towards the promised land. They're not quite there, but in order to get there, they have to go through a land called Moab. Now, uh, the king of Moab sees this large group of people coming up to his borders, and it makes him nervous. So he hires a guy named Balaam, kind of a local uh, you know, magician or prophet or whatever you want to say, to go and to curse the Israelites, hoping it'll deter them. Balaam doesn't really want to do it, but the king offers him enough money. He says, okay, I'll go. Uh, That's the way to get things done. (laughs) So Balaam, he gets on his donkey, and he rides out to meet the Israelites. And on his way, his donkey starts talking to him. 
Things get a little weird. And uh, it turns out God was speaking to him through the donkey, telling him, hey, don't curse the Israelites. They're my people. So Balaam comes to the conclusion, yeah, you know what? Talking donkey, I'm not going to curse the Israelites. I'm going to bless them instead. So he blesses them instead of cursing them. And that doesn't make the king of Moab happy. So he, he changes his plan. This time, he sends a group of Moabite women into the camp of Israel. Moabite women. And these, uh, <laughs> these Israelite men who'd been in the desert for years, who were following very strict laws and rules from God about sex, like, you know, like don't have it. <laughs> they were all too happy to see these Moabite women. And the Moabite women uh, invited the Israelite men to come, sacrifice to our gods, worship our gods instead, turn away from your God, enticing them to do that. So God sends a curse to the Israelites, curses them with a plague, but they don't care that much. They were having lots of fun with the Moabite women. So Moses and some others are like, what are we going to do, right? They start talking to each other, talking to God to figure out how to stop this. And as they're doing that, one of the Israelite men brings a Moabite woman into his tent And while they're in the act there in the tent, Phineas grabs a spear, runs in, and with one stab kills both the Israelite man and the woman. And God says after that to Moses, Phineas has turned away my anger. The zealots wanted to be like Phineas. They believed their passion and even their violent defense of their tradition would keep them and all of God's people of Israel under God's grace and in his favor. And this is what the young Saul believed and aspired to. Galatians 1, as he's writing, kind of looking back at his life, he says these words. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He was zealous. And when Saul was old enough, he left home in Tarsus to go to Jerusalem the center of the Jewish life, the religion, the temples there, to study the scriptures under a rabbi. And eventually, he was so good, he would become one of the Pharisees, one of those religious elite that policed the people of Israel to make sure they were following God's law, following it well. And then when this small but growing group of people begins claiming the Jewish Messiah has come, his name is Jesus, He was crucified, but he rose from the dead. It's all that Saul could do to violently, passionately, zealously protect his Jewish tradition from being taken over. First thing we hear about Saul slash Paul in the scriptures is in Acts chapter 8. In the first couple verses, it says uh, this about him. It says, Saul, this is right after, uh, by the way, the first Christian is killed for his faith. His name's Stephen. He's put to death, put on trial, put to death. It says, Saul approved of their killing, Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. And going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Paul was passionate about his God and his traditions. It's who he was. It was deep in his soul. It's part of him. But his passion was misplaced until Jesus confronted him, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Now, not all of us are super passionate 
just in who we are like Paul was. Most of us are probably a little more chill, a little less murdery when it comes to what we're passionate about. Now, now I'm not implying that you need to be crazy passionate and zealous like Paul, but we got to acknowledge that we do, even if we're not a passionate person, we wouldn't consider ourselves that way, we do get passionate about things, right? Maybe a little bit of passion, maybe a lot. Sports, food, movies, music, Marvel, like we all experience some level of passion with something. And when you're passionate about something, what do you do? You probably spend time doing that thing, right? Thinking about it, researching it, talking about it. Uh, maybe your friends and family are so sick of hearing, like you start to bring it up, they're like, no, 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 nope, I know where this is going, stop, right? We, that's, that's how we are. Even if what you're passionate about is totally lame to most people, I bet you don't care that it's lame because you love it so much, you're passionate about it. Like I'm a big fan of the Boston Bruins. Dare I say I'm a little passionate about the Boston Bruins. Uh, huge fan of this hockey team. I follow certain social media accounts to stay up on the news, listen to sports radio, you know, read podcasts or articles, whatever, because I love the Bruins. I like get preparing for the season, getting ready, getting on my, you know, my, got my Bruins gear ready to go, nice and pressed. Fancy jersey, it's great. And I get so excited to tell Taylor about things, like, hey, this guy got injured, this, you know, they made a trade for this guy, and she, I know, she does not care at all. <laughs> like, not even a little, but I don't care, because I'm like, I just want to talk about it. This thing happened, I want to talk about it with you and tell you about it, but she doesn't care. And uh, I'm okay that she doesn't care, because I care. I care so much. And I can't help but talk about it. And she's the closest person usually to me. So we, you know, we all have passions. We all do. We are passionate about something. Even if you wouldn't consider yourself a passionate person. We all have passions. And I think passion is a God-given gift. And I think part of that is because Jesus wants our passion directed towards him. And his love, his grace, his goodness, his power what he did for us. He deserves our passion because what he did changed history and it changes our lives. If you're not passionate about Jesus, at least a little bit, chances are it's probably hard for you to say at times, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. When you come up to those moments where you're met with an eye roll or, uh, you know, it's good for you, but I, I'm not interested. Passion is what's going to keep you going. It's what's going to keep you hopeful. It's what's going to keep you from getting discouraged. Passion. Now, passion for Jesus does need to be cultivated in us. If you don't know him, like really know him, you're probably not going to be very passionate about him. So I just say, cultivate that passion we're not reinventing the wheel when we talk about this. Cultivate that passion. Read your Bible. Pray. Spend time with people who know and love Jesus too. All those things will work to help increase your passion for him. So that when, those time come, when that time comes to talk about him, the fear, guilt, and shame won't stop you. Because you're going to say, I don't care. Because I'm so very passionate about him. Second theme in Paul's life that I want to mention today is that Paul was transformed. He was changed. The passionate, zealous Pharisee, Saul, was doing everything he could to destroy the Jesus movement. Going from town to town, arresting people, 
for believing that Jesus was the Messiah. He hated Jesus' followers and he hated Jesus. He loved the Jewish tradition he grew up with and would defend it at all costs. He didn't want it to change. But then he was changed. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. We'll read some from Acts 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's the church. He went to the high priest, the big guy in charge, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's the Jesus movement, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Uh, He wanted to destroy this Jesus movement. Now, notice here, Paul wasn't sent to Damascus. He asked to go. High priest, give me the power and the authority. Write these letters that says, I'm able to go arrest people in Damascus. He was zealous, right? There's that passion. We'll go on, verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. You know, you mess with Jesus enough, eventually he's going to confront you about it, right? So Saul gets confronted in a pretty big way, right? He literally knocks him off his horse, knocks him on his butt, and uh, like anyone who comes face-to-face with Jesus, Saul doesn't leave this situation without being changed, Go to verse 7. So the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anything or anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So, you know, I think it's safe to say if this happened to any of us, it would be pretty hard to deny what happened, right? going blind (laughs) because you were knocked off your horse. Uh, So blind, Saul does what Jesus says. He goes into the city and his group goes with him. Now, they didn't see what happened. They knew he fell down. They knew he was blind. They heard some sound. But what this group with Saul knew was that this man who was leading the charge into the city to go destroy the Jesus followers, they now need to lead him into the city blind to wait for further instructions from the very Jesus and the very Jesus people that Saul was on his way to destroy. Kind of must have been a little hard to wrap their minds around because that is a change. Let's skip down a few verses. They get into the city. A Christian named Ananias comes, prays for for Saul slash Paul. And then it says this, It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name, the name of Jesus? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet, I love this, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I call that a transformation from zealous destroyer of the Jesus movement to a preacher so good no one could debate him about the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. God is in the transformation business. He is in the transformation business. 
He doesn't want you to stay who you were because who you were was apart from him. He wants to transform you, like real transformation. Not just like, hey, I used to lie to my parents sometimes, but I don't do that as much anymore. Yeah, that's good, good job. But that's not the kind of transformation we're talking about. We're talking about big dreams, whole life, body, soul, mind, everything reoriented and changed around him and who he is and what he's done. And that's what happened to Paul. He went from Saul, the zealous persecutor, to Paul, the apostle, the evangelist, the church planner. That's a big time transformation. And I think God wants that transformation for you too. But if we're being honest, I think most of us didn't have a big moment like Paul had. We weren't knocked off our horse. We weren't blind for three days. Maybe you have had that big moment that's undeniable and hard to to rationalize other than that was God, 100%. And I praise God for that. That is awesome. But for many of us, that's more like a series of little moments that move us along. Some bigger, some smaller, some significant, maybe some seem insignificant. I mean, that's how my life has seemed as I look back. Series of smaller movements but all those moments working in the transformation process along the way. Uh, for instance, a bigger moment for me was between eighth and ninth grade. I went on a uh, week-long trip with our church youth group to a small town in West Virginia to uh, do some work in the community, cleaning houses, painting, um, doing VBS program for kids. And I saw during that time, for the first time in my life, that God uses people He uses people for the good of this world, their lives, and for the spread of his gospel. And I saw that firsthand for the first time, and that did something that transformed me. And then there's those little moments that maybe, yeah, you don't even know it at the time, but they also work to transform you. Like a late night conversation I had with my friend Corey on his rooftop in Providence, Rhode Island when we were 22. When you follow Jesus, you are in the transformation process. It's always happening, moment by moment, day by day, year by year. That's what God does. He transforms you to be more like you and who he created you to be, and somehow at the same time, more like Jesus. It's transforming you. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he was transformed by it. It changed him. This message that Jesus came, died, rose again, that changed him. He couldn't deny it. And for us too, the gospel changes us. How can we deny it? How can we be ashamed of it? When we get to experience the power and the goodness of Jesus. Now, if you aren't being transformed, or you, maybe you haven't taken stock and really looked at your life, and notice that transformation and how God has worked in you, chances are it's going to be easier to, or it's not going to be as easy to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel when those moments come. Fear and guilt and shame might come in because maybe we just don't, we're not aware and engaged with the power of Jesus and seen it firsthand. But when we are transformed by it and we know it and we realize it, how can you not be passionate about it? You know, fear, guilt, and shame are going to try to work their way in even when we are super passionate and even when we know and see, like, this is what God's done for me. It's a lot easier when we haven't taken the time to take stock and realize those things. 
So this week, church, I just want to encourage you to take some time and look back in your life. Look back to the time when you first met Jesus and where you were at then, right? What was I passionate about then? What was I involved with? Who was, who was I involved with? What was my character like? Be honest with yourself and just take a moment to take stock of who you were then. And then take some time and think about yourself now. What am I passionate about now? What am I involved in? Who am I involved with? What's my character like? And notice the change. And that change is because you've been transformed by Jesus. And remember, you're still being transformed. Then, once you've looked back and you look now, just think about those moments in between. Those moments big and small that moved you along the way. That's how God works in many of our lives. It's those moments along the way. You know, passion is often a result of transformation. That makes sense if you think about it, right? What we're passionate about, those are the things we are involved in that we do regularly, engaged with. You know, I don't know anyone who's passionate about something that they don't engage in, right? I don't, I don't believe there's such thing as passive passion, right? <laughs> your passion for Jesus will come from your experiences with him. From noticing, taking stock, and seeing, whether in real time or in retrospect, the transformation process that's gone on in your life and is going on in your life. And your passion will come out of that. You know, God is at work in you. God, he is always at work in you. Now, uh, some of you may be listening to me talk right now and, and, and you've been, maybe you feel guilty or, or shame because you're not like Paul. You're saying, oh, I'm not passionate like that. I'm, you know, I don't know if I've been transformed. Well, I want to tell you, like, don't feel that way. Don't feel guilty, don't feel ashamed, because you're not a finished product. We're all on, our, on the way, right? But you're not a finished product. You're not perfect. I'm definitely not perfect. But God is at work in you. I promise you that. God is at work in you. And if you ask him, he will transform you. And if you ask him, he will grow your passion. So don't feel guilty or afraid or ashamed, right? That's not what God wants for you. He wants passion and joy and hope in your life. And you experience those things in him. And he's at work in you to get you there. And he's not done with you. He's never done with you. And when we want it, right? When we want to not feel ashamed, we ask for it and we work at it. He's going to work in you too to get you there. So trust him, trust his work. You're on your way. Uh, come back next week, family, uh, for, we're going to talk about themes three and four in Paul's life. And uh, also, I just want to say, next week, I have an announcement to make about some things that are going to be coming up this fall that I'm super excited about. I call this a big market tease in the business, right? So come back next week uh, for that. It's going to be good. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, you, never mind. Come back next week. Uh, it's going to be good. Uh, but let's, let's close in prayer, shall we? Church, would you stand with me? And let's, uh, let's pray. And then I hope you have a really great day and a great week. Let's pray. God, thanks. Thanks that you are at work and you are always at work. And thank you that you are, 
You're the type of God who doesn't want us to feel ashamed or guilty or fear and to walk around just with this heavy sense of being not good enough and lesser than and bad. No, you are the God who gives us hope. You're the God who gives us joy. You're the God who gives us purpose. And it's those things that you want us to experience in their fullness in you. So God, I ask that you just meet us all where we're at right now and increase those good things, those good feelings. And Lord, would you bear the weight of those bad things? Take them away from us so that we can feel and experience the type of passion and the sense of transformation that when we come up into those moments where it's, we get a chance to share about you with someone that fear, guilt, and shame would not even, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't even enter into the situation. Help us, Lord, in that. And God, open our eyes to how you're working now, how you've been working, and how you're going to work. Help us to see the opportunities before us to grow, to live on mission, and to just uh, know you and love you more. So God, we're just thankful today, thankful for you. Send us out with that sense of thanks, that sense of joy. And Lord, would we know you, would we worship you, and would we see you in greater ways this week? Um, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. Thanks for being here. Sign up for Corn Roast. Do it. God bless you. <laughs>